0: Dr. can 2nd EMS, District, Station 5
1: Thanks for joining us back on our special mini series on opioids brought to you by the IFF Health and Safety Division. My name is Sarah Burns, Behavioral Health Specialist at the IFF. We know that recovery looks different for everyone, and today we're going to hear one member's story of recovery from opioids. Our guest is Tyler Ramsey from Phoenix Local 493. Tyler, thanks for being here today and being willing to share your story with
0: us. Thanks, Sarah. No problem.
1: To start off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background?
0: Yeah, I'm actually um, I'm actually a Canadian guy. I uh, grew up in a really small town of about 200 people, uh, farming community in in Manitoba in Canada, and grew up with a dad that was a fireman and a grandpa that's a fire was a fireman and. Hockey actually brought me down to Arizona, funny enough, and I came here when I was about 20 years old, and, and I've been here ever since, and been along with Phoenix Fire Department for about 12 and a half years now.
1: Sounds like a long history of fire service in your family.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my grandpa was, and, and he's passed on now, and, and my dad is still currently on the job, so we, uh, we do definitely have some history there.
1: All right. So could you tell us a little about how you started using opioids? How did that come about in your life?
0: Yeah, like I said, uh, I think similar to most guys on the job that end up in trouble. Um, we're all pretty active guys. A lot of a lot of guys are athletes, and that was kind of my story. And played a fairly high level of rugby and hockey and had some injuries that carried over. And then starting in the fire service, and takes a, a toll on your body. So initially it was need, and then it became dependence and then it became addiction for me.
1: Mm-hmm. And how long ago was that?
0: I've been off everything for five years.
1: And how, how long has it been since since you ended up addicted?
0: Oh shoot, it was probably four years before that.
1: Okay. Um, so what was the addiction like for you? What impacts did it have on your life?
0: Um, I guess you, you become a slave to it, right? That's when you don't have it, you get very sick and you go through withdrawals and um but you become a slave to it and it's the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning it's the last thing you think about before you before you close your eyes at night and it's everything in between right there's not a facet of your life you go through without truly you know making that a part of it
1: Mm -hmm. so this was really an all-consuming thing in your in your life at that time
0: yeah absolutely i mean you know, I still function, I guess, to some extent and was raising kids and and coaching hockey and firefighting and everything else. But uh, clearly, everybody around me knew that there was something going on and and I was in denial about my issues. So.
1: Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the, the people around you realize that, that you might need some help before you were able to recognize that for yourself did they try to bring it up with you what was that like
0: yeah I had a lot of people you know try and bring it up with me and and uh, in a kind way and pull me aside and say hey what's going on Tyler you're not you're not acting like yourself and you know I think deep down I knew I had an issue for a long time before I was willing to admit it you know and I think when you're on this job you know you're you're a problem solver right so we show up and solve people's problems, and we're pretty, um, pretty macho, and that we'll help anyone, but have a hard time asking for help for ourselves. Right? That was the hard, the hardest part for me was that that phone felt like it weighed a thousand pounds.
1: Definitely. So, what led to you getting help?
0: You know, I think it just kind of came to a head, and um, it truly was a situation where uh, things were not good at home with my ex-wife, and I. I guess you could describe it as like I had a moment of clarity, you know, I I was thinking, what am I doing here? (laughs) You know, and, and uh, I just stopped. And um, I had kind of had an inroad already with the local, because I kind of semi said I maybe need some help, but I don't think I do. And so I had a little deal there and then i just called them and said like hey I, re- I really need help here this is this has become a problem and i i can't solve it
1: mm-hmm. and who was the first person you talked to at the local when you made that phone call who was on the other end what was that conversation like
0: yeah i believe it was ray Mayone and and uh, with the local and he's with member services and you know it's uh ray is an amazing guy he he constantly puts everybody else before himself and he's amazing with the guys on, on our local and helping them. And, you know, very, he's to the point and he's uh, a true blue New Yorker. He's to the point and, uh, and not harsh, but caring and, and uh, absolutely that would give you the shirt off your back for you asked for it. So I immediately felt the love as soon as I went down this road.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. That's great to hear. I know Ray's been influential for a lot of folks. Uh, So, so you called and, and, you know, do you remember what you said and what happened next?
0: You know what? I don't really remember that conversation too well. I was in a pretty bad place and uh, I, they were able to get me a bed in a inpatient rehab facility that same day within, I think it was within an hour.
1: And that's pretty incredible. We know that when it gets to the point where a firefighter or EMS professional asks for help that, uh, as professionals, I'm a social worker, we really have to be ready to help them right away.
0: Yeah. I think, um, you know, I think at this point we, we send our guys to the the center over there on the East coast, but at that time, it wasn't a thing yet. And, um, or not that we sent people to anyways. And so I went to a local, uh, rehab facility about 10 minutes, 15 minutes from my house. And, Ray had a really tremendous relationship with the people there, and uh, they—I think he maybe had some beds on standby there just for for us folks, and they were able to get me. I was checked in within two hours there. So,
1: Mm -hmm. and what was that treatment experience like? How long did you stay? What kind of um, things did you learn while you were there?
0: I was there for thirty days, and um, it was it was scary, you know, like. It was uh, initially not uh, knowing anything really about that world or or how that all works. Like it was a little scary and daunting at first. And then there were tremendous people and really helped me through the process. And um, like I said, it was an inpatient facility. So every day was, um, you know, classes and one on one therapy and group therapy and um, all sorts of different stuff. And a lot of going through the, the book of, Alcoholics Anonymous and and then getting a sponsor and and working the steps and and we did lots of fun stuff too, like beach volleyball every night and stuff like that to stay active and stay busy. And um, overall, it was a tremendous experience and completely changed my life.
1: So I know when you first called member services, it must have been a a pretty hard phone call to make. Um, What were some of the challenges in asking for help?
0: Well, I think the biggest challenge for for people in our line of work are, is just asking for help. You know, I think once you once you truly break that plane, it's easy after that, right? Because the people are so helpful. But it's uh, it's just that initial phone call, right? It's like pushing uh, pushing sand on the phone is the hard part. And you know, like I said, as a problem solver, you do it every day and you help p- perfect strangers. But asking your good friends and that for help is, um, is very hard thing to do. And like I said, once, uh, once they were notified there, they completely took over and I was just a passenger.
1: You mentioned that you stayed at that treatment center for 30 days. Um, what happened when you left the treatment center?
0: So I did, um, I believe it was six weeks of outpatient therapy with the same facility on a different campus where you go Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and you continue to be tested, drug tested, and, and you kind of do more. It's more just group meetings every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then you do some other stuff. And I did a lot of meetings and um, like anonymous meetings. And um, I was actually I lived in a sober living uh, house with a few other sober folks for four months during all that.
1: It sounds like the local was really supportive in getting you treatment and the EAP program that Local 493 has uh, established was really uh, instrumental in getting you to the treatment you needed. Um, what, if any, was the role of the department, you know, going, going you know, to a treatment center for 30 days and then doing an intensive outpatient? Um, were you working at all during this time or did you need to take leave? What did that look like?
0: um no the i i honestly the the i don't know how that all worked i didn't work during that time and the local took care of all of it they took all of that off my plate um so i was able to concentrate on my recovery and getting well and and the city of phoenix here was instrumental in backing my and just backing my play i guess and everyone else that's been through it and uh believing in the local 493 and what they what they're doing for guys so I'm not sure, honestly, what that looked like on the administrative end. I know that I didn't have to get back on the truck till I was uh, ready and cleared for duty.
1: That sounds pretty incredible. Even if you don't know how the details worked out, that the department was willing to to work with somebody on your behalf from the local to figure that out so you could focus on what was really important.
0: Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, for me, um, it was life or death, right? I think we've seen that. It's an epidemic. and. Um, yeah it was unbelievable they the city and uh, the local were amazing and instrumental in my recovery for sure
1: so when you did return to work what did that look like how did that feel
0: um it was good i mean we're a this is a pretty tradition rich job and uh, as you know and I was a little worried about what guys were gonna think you know and uh, or say or how they were gonna act around me or you know i was pretty nervous when I first came back and what I guess what people don't know that haven't been in this world is that everybody knows somebody who's had issues with alcohol or drugs or you know a family member that's had issues or whatever and it couldn't have been more it couldn't have been more welcoming like they kind of did a uh, the department did a thing where they put me on a truck as the fifth man um, for a little bit and and uh, the crew that I went to agreed to take me and have me because they knew me before and and i'm still at that station now and it's four and a half years later and um they were unbelievable and helping me and protecting me and really welcoming me back into the field and the whole station here has been absolutely unbelievably supportive and and it's almost uh doesn't even come up anymore i guess and uh Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't believe the support from everybody on the job. I I honestly thought there would be some naysayers, but there truly wasn't.
1: What were some of the helpful things that people, you know, whether you're fellow crew members or people else, other people in the department, um, what were the really helpful things that people did when you came back to work?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, the constant phone calls of, or text messages or whatever, guys just checking up on me and, you know, that it, and lots of guys just, having a chat like they don't i was very vocal about my recovery a lot of guys like to you know just kind of get past it and move on and i just thought you know what like if i can help other people great but i also did it selfishly to keep myself accountable so i was pretty vocal about it and um most guys kind of knew i think what was going on but why I was gone and then why I was back and, and all that. But, uh, you know, like the, just guys reaching out saying, Hey man, I get it. Like my brother or my dad or my mom, or, you know, um, so many stories that guys just open up about and you truly realize you're in a whole different world with our community with, uh, people that have been through those experiences.
1: Yeah. I think at this point, everybody knows somebody who's been affected by the opioid epidemic
0: Oh, for sure. And, and my crew and the guys here at station five were unbelievable, like constantly checking in on me, you know, you know, fireman is a big, uh, it's a big rumor mill. So guys would call the station. They wouldn't let me answer the phone. They would take the calls and say, he's not available or whatever. And, uh, you know, they were unbelievably protective of me and helpful and constantly checking in and, you know, like all that stuff goes a long way. So.
1: How are things different in your life now? I know you mentioned you went to uh, treatment and you returned to work, you know, at least four and a half years ago. What are things like today?
0: Things are great. Um, I got divorced actually, as uh, I guess this was my addiction was the final nail in the coffin there. There's, there was some issues before. So after I got out of, um, out of, sober living i continued to work the program and and uh, moved into an apartment and i had I have three daughters so i was spending a lot of time with them and and actually i met the my current girlfriend who will be my wife at those apartments i moved into at so after a sober living so um we had just moved into a house in october together with all of our kids and uh life is good i mean it's It's unbelievable, and I try not to take for granted that uh, it was quite, quite close to not being here, and, you know, truly feel like I've been given a second chance at life here. So
1: that's great. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I've heard a lot of members talk about how. When they were addicted, like you said, you know, asking for help and making that phone call or having that first conversation was really challenging. And one of the other challenges I hear mentioned a lot is, well, how do I tell my kids? You know, what do I say to my family um, or, you know, around going away to treatment or, you know, addressing some of the things that were happening? Um, How did you handle that?
0: You know, um, that was probably the hardest thing was... um, not seeing them, and um, my girls were young enough then, where they truly don't really remember or know what happened. And once they're old enough to truly understand, I will talk about it with them. But I haven't really had to to cross that bridge, you know. Like they were used to me being gone a lot with work, anyways. And so my oldest at the time was only five, so she truly didn't really understand what was going on but that's a conversation once they are old enough to understand that I will will have with them but um about issues that I had and you know and, and not necessarily I guess um everyone is this way but it's definitely something that runs in genes so it's something I want them to be aware of maybe they have an addictive personality or genealogy and so I, it's my job kind of as their dad to make them aware that that I've had these issues and and uh protect them.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So important to, you know, discuss these issues openly within the fire service and within our own families.
0: Yeah, I think forever these the issues of addiction have been very kind of swept under the carpet and you're a bad person if you have it and you know like that and that's definitely not the case. So um it's not taboo to be an addict or an alcoholic. It's uh it's a real problem and I think everyone's Truly, kind of understanding that now because of uh, the this opioid crisis, which is sad and good, it's brought it dragged it right out into the uh, into the light for everyone to see and and make everyone truly aware. So,
1: what types of things are you doing these days to maintain your recovery?
0: It's pretty progression throughout. Like I front loaded pretty heavy on meetings; I would go every day, sometimes multiple meetings. I help host meetings. I help build meetings. I was in the book. I went through the steps multiple times, working with my sponsor, having sponsees. Like I was pretty heavy loaded. And then over time I, um, I knew what I needed. So I backed off certain things and, and I knew what I needed. But the, the biggest thing I find is one, it truly helps to have the support that I have and people that know, you know, um, that are constantly checking in on me and, and two, like uh, having a great support system at home is huge for me. And then, um, like prayers and daily meditation are part of my stuff, and and being on the job, I mean, running these calls, it keeps it pretty forefront for you. You know, you don't, you truly get to help people and and, and that are struggling with the same stuff. So it keeps the ugly realistic. You see that ugly side, and you're like, it's just a reminder of you, you know, how badly you want to work to make sure you never go back there. And and for me, a, a lot of it is daily reflect, uh, reflection. So. At the end of the day, it's looking back and I haven't had a craving since I got off of it. That's not been an issue, I think, because I've kept myself emotionally well, right? And that truly daily reflection, am I being a good person? Have I been a good person today? Because all that emotional, at least my story was all that emotional stuff and the injuries and all that kind of led to my addiction and, and, and all that stuff and my inability to get well. Right. And it wasn't truly truly till I got emotionally well that I was able to get physically well. And so that's kind of my story. And if I find that I need to get in the big book, uh, still I do. And and, uh, you know, or get into the Bible a little bit, that that's kind of the way I take it. I take it day by day and and kind of reflect back on my life every day and and build it from there.
1: Uh, What's it like now when you're on the truck and you get an opioid run?
0: Yeah, it's very, uh, it's very interesting. Honestly, um, the hardest part with an addict is they are an alcoholic is they're, they're not always honest, right? I was the same way, lie, lie, lie. And, and, uh, but it's funny how quickly they open up when you speak their language. Um, so it's truly a benefit to, I feel like um, it's been a benefit in my career, because these people will really talk to me and just tell me the truth. You know, because you speak their language and it's almost like they feel like they can trust you. And I think it helps. Like usually uh, I'm a medic on our truck. So my captain is also the other medic. He just hands me the clipboard when we get those calls because he knows I can kind of speak their language and usually just goes a little better. So, yeah, it's honestly um, and it helps me. Right. You Like I said, you see the ugly and the reality of of if you ever went back there, what that would look like. So.
1: Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Definitely makes sense. I think it's, you know, the basis of a lot of the the peer support programs that the IFF and Phoenix Local 493 are utilizing
0: these days. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's hugely beneficial.
1: Um, You mentioned uh, Ray. Are there other people who've been really influential in your recovery and, you know, maintaining your wellness over the last several years?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like Ray and then uh, my counselor at the time through the EAP, through the fire department was Rick Canfield. He was truly a gem. And and we have Carrie Romella now who's doing that. And um, she, I didn't really work with her with my situation, but she'll reach out to me if they need help with somebody who's newly going into the program or whatever. And she's truly a gem and, and helping a lot of people there. And Andy Arredondo. Um, was with member services. He's now retired. He's a good friend and he helped me a lot. And like I said, my crew and my sponsor and I mean, my parents and my brother and my family. And I mean, the list goes on and on, right? Like the, I could sit here for an hour and the, I've truly had a ton of support and I don't know if I could ever honestly give you a, a list of their, the, it's just unbelievable.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of people were involved and supportive. Uh, What else would you like people to know about your individual story? you know, at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned that everybody's story looks different. So I'm I'm not asking you to speak for everybody who's in recovery in the fire service. Uh, But what else would you like to share with us?
0: You know, I don't, I don't think there's anything about, uh, my story personally that's special or needs attention. What I think is that, uh, you know it took me a long time to trust and not because they were doing things wrong because i was in such a bad place that the local was gonna truly help me you know i was in such a brain fog with everything that was going on and you know you just don't trust anyone and i think if i can say anything to anyone who's struggling with it is reach reach out i know that first phone call is hard to make and um, my experience couldn't have been better. It completely changed my life and honestly saved my life. So uh, make that phone call and get the help going and once the resources are endless. That's a great message. Uh, it's so
1: consistent with what we're trying to do with the IFF uh, is let our members know that help is out there. There are other people who have been through this who can guide you through it. Uh, and that, you know, we want all of our members uh, to stay well uh, and get well if they're not in a good place right now.
0: Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. What you guys are doing is, is amazing and I'm 100% on board with it. That's why I agreed to do this. I think it's necessary.
1: Well, I want to thank you again. Thank you so much for being willing to share your story uh, and giving a little bit of hope to other members out there who uh, may still be dealing with an opioid addiction and maybe on the fence about getting help. So thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you for having me, sir.
1: To access the other videos and podcasts in this series, visit opioidepidemic.iff.org. Content was supported by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences of the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Energy under award number UH4ES009759. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health or the Department of Energy.